Just one week ago, on August the 11th, 2023, something made national news that brought shoulder dystocia to the limelight, and not in a good way. We're not going to mention the physician, we're not going to mention the family for privacy, but this is obviously no secret. This happened uh, in one of our uh, southeastern states, and it was catastrophic. And central to this horrific obstetrical birth event was shoulder dystocia. In the process of trying to deliver this baby, pulled on the baby's head and neck so hard and manipulated them so hard that uh, the bones in the baby's skull, face and neck were broken. As if that was not bad enough, what proceeded from that shoulder dystocia and that failed attempt at vaginal extraction was the stuff of nightmares. Now, I I have never heard of this happening with a shoulder dystocia, but it just lets you know that despite best efforts, uh, you know, bad things happen, and this is is pretty catastrophic. So a warning if you're listening to this in the car uh, with young children, just FYI, this is a real event and could be a little disturbing. Obviously, the physician unable to extract the child vaginally then proceeded with the cesarean section. Although details are not being discussed right now. And obviously, this is going to litigation. So we just want to give a very high overview uh, and a very quick disclosure. I don't know that hospital and I don't know the physician. I don't know the people involved. But at, at time of cesarean section, as the baby was delivered in a reverse breach, uh, the baby was decapitated. In other words, the head stayed in the vagina and the rest of the body uh, uh, was delivered through the abdomen. Obviously horrific and obviously now going to litigation and possible uh, some criminal implications here for a variety of reasons. Now, it's very timely that on August the 16th, 2023, something was released from the American Journal of OBGYN that could not have come at a better time, not just because of that horrific event, but really, like for those of us who are at academic centers, uh, and, and everybody knows what that means, right? Brand new interns, brand new upper levels. Uh, the period from July really until about October is a very, very kind of high stress time for a variety of reasons because there's people with a lack of experience on the wards and shoulder dystocia we've got to be ready for and we have to know how to release it. We have to know how to perform the maneuvers. So I want to share this with you all because uh, I find this super interesting. I, you know, I've been out uh, from residency for a little while, but not a long time because I'm not old, as I always say. And, and I've asked patients, uh, I'm sorry, not patients. <laughs> I've asked residents and medical students uh, and others in training, um, when we're doing a shoulder-to-shoulder drill, why do we do, for example, sh- uh, the suprapubic pressure? And the answer that I get, literally about 50% of the time in my uh, qu- uh, quasi-qualitative analysis, uh, is, is the answer that I'm given is absolutely the wrong answer. So if they don't understand why they're doing it, then the bigger problem is that they're doing it incorrectly. So this is why we're doing this episode, not only because the AJOG just released this, and we're going to summarize those very important key points uh, from that from that review, we're going to do that in this episode. Uh, the truth is there's nothing new in, in that because th- we've known this already, but it's a great refresher. And the old adage of work your way down in the, quote, complexity of release maneuvers, end quote, it is not valid. That's not even a thing. I don't even know what that means. And I'm going to explain that in this episode. And I'm going to explain 
why that 50% of the time when, when I ask someone, why do we do suprapubic pressure? I'm going to tell you what their answer is and why that's wrong. And, and we're going to go over the tips and the vital techniques of how to do this correctly. I've seen suprapubic pressure done absolutely incorrectly that is is probably impacting the shoulder even worse uh, behind the uh, pubic symphysis. And, and we're going to go over techniques here and, and we're going to talk about which maneuvers are evidence-based that you should probably do first. Now, historically, I learned completely opposite because what I'm about to say in this episode is not what I learned. I learned that you do this technique almost last when everything else fails. The truth is we need to move that technique all the way up the chain because that's one that probably works the best and protects the brachial plexus. So if you haven't guessed by now, we're talking about posterior arm extraction. So a lot of things that that not necessarily new, but a great review uh, about tips about how to do this correctly so that that horrific event that happened just last week, well, actually, it happened some time ago, but last week the news broke about it. It went nationwide so that that doesn't happen to happen again, not only to the family, which is first and foremost the most uh, horrific and the most tragic of all, but think about the PTSD of the staff, y'all. Y'all think about that? I mean, the physician who I don't know, but I'm sure you're like, what is, oh my Oh my goodness. I mean, the, the CRNA, anesthesiologist, uh, the scrub, to deliver a child uh, with what happened um, uh, will make anybody want to quit. So we've got to get this right. So in this episode, we're going to cover a brand new publication from AGOG and the data about which maneuvers work and how to do them correctly. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. I know we risk stratify patients for risk for shoulder dystocia, and that's absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, remember, of course, I mean, if the patient has diabetes and the estimated fetal weight is more than 4,500 grams, you should offer, you should really consider a primary cesarean section. And if the estimated fetal weight by Hadlock is 5,000 grams or more without diabetes, the same applies. It's just, it's just a big child, even with the error of the ultrasound. So consideration of primary cesarean section should be done. And of course, previous history of shoulder dystocia is a big deal. But even though we risk stratify, ACOG reminds us in Practice Bulletin 178 back in 2017 that, quote, shoulder dystocia is an unpredictable and unpreventable obstetrical emergency that places a pregnant woman and fetus at risk of injury, end quote. Do I get those two words that start with un, that is unpredictable and unpreventable? Now, yes, there's risk factors, but the majority of shoulder dystocias, guys, oddly enough, happen without those because those are the outliers, right? Those are on the other end of the spectrum, and most pregnancies are in the middle of the road. So, yes, those risk factors are super important, but it still remains, quote, unpredictable and unpreventable, end quote. This publication that we're going to summarize comes out of the Gray Journal, and it's an expert review, and the title is A Critical Evaluation of the External and Internal Maneuvers for Resolution of Shoulder Dystocia. We're going to go right into it here, because there are some maneuvers that absolutely are much more effective at reducing the dystocia, at, at relieving the problem. Uh, and, and there's some techniques, even how you do it, McRoberts, that, that we have to discuss. Because I've seen McRoberts done in some weird ways, like pushing on the feet up 
which is not the right way to do McRoberts. Uh, you're supposed to pull on the thighs uh, centrally towards the abdomen, and we'll discuss that as well. Uh, and I've actually heard it said, oh, no, you're doing it wrong because the buttocks is coming up off the bed. That's actually exactly what you want. You want that that elevation, which means that you're helping the angle of descent. So there's a lot of things here that we have to get right. Um, uh, and we've got to to understand that some maneuvers obviously are are easier than others and the ones that you should do first because they're they're they're, they're most likely to be effective uh, are the ones that come to mind uh, everybody knows of course McRoberts and suprapubic but but you've got to make sure that you're doing them correctly so we're going to address this and we're going to jump into the other maneuvers as well so that we make sure that what happened recently oh my goodness just never happens again McRoberts was first described in the early 1980s, which really isn't that long ago. I mean, you'd think it'd been around for like centuries, right? No, not really. I mean, just in the 1980s. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, that's super old school. Uh, Two things for you. No, it's not because I was in the 80s. And second, there's nothing like the 80s in music. Okay, so the 80s the 80s are great. And yes, the 80s gave us the McRoberts maneuver. How great is that? So the McRoberts maneuver in and of itself is helpful, but it's always used with its partner. Anyone? Anyone? Y'all know that, right? The suprapubic pressure. Used together, McRoberts and suprapubic pressure, when done correctly, that's the catch. We're going to discuss that in a minute. Have efficacy rates to release the impacted anterior shoulder anywhere from 26%. You're like, well, that sucks. Yeah, that's pretty sucky. I've never seen one that low, but that's what's in the some of the data, uh, to as high as 93%. How's that for a spread? And so your first question is, oh, wait a minute, why is it reported from 26% to like 93%? And the answer has to do with a lot of things, but mainly maternal obesity, BMI. Obviously, if the patient's BMI is 50, suprapubic pressure and McRoberts are are just not going to be that effective. Does that make sense? So one of the biggest factors here is the patient's BMI for McRoberts and suprapubic pressure. But there's no question that in the majority of cases, because they are less uh, uh, technically difficult uh, and less complicated, although complicated is a is a relative term, McRoberts and suprapubic still remain uh, frontline, but the catch is to do them correctly. One of the criticisms of the McRoberts maneuver, though, is, yes, it's definitely patient BMI dependent, uh, but the bigger criticism is that you still need to do a lot of external traction on the baby's neck. I mean, the baby's not going to fall out by itself just because you did McRoberts. And that's one of the things that we're trying to prevent here is severe brachial plexus injury. Yes, we're trying to prevent death for sure, but thankfully, even ACOG says... Uh, you know, severe asphyxia leading to neonatal death uh, is, is overall pretty rare. Um, wasn't that rare to the case in the southeast state? But um, so, and when it happens, it's absolutely horrible. But but the the majority of the issue that we're trying to prevent here, outside of deaths, is of course brachial plexus injury and, and neck trauma. And and you still need to apply traction even with McRoberts. So that's why people are now looking at posterior arm delivery, which even back in 2017 in the ACOG bulletin, uh, ACOG said even back then, hey, posterior arm should probably move up right after suprapubic pressure and McRoberts if those are done correctly because the success rate of posterior arm delivery, again, when done correctly, uh, is anywhere from 72% to listen to what this expert review says, it says it's 97.4% effective, 974 
And why is that so good? Because once you release the posterior arm, not only you're pulling the arm through, but you're decreasing the, the AP diameter of the baby in its vertical plane. And you're also rotating that anterior shoulder away from the impacted pubic symphysis, right? So it's not just as you sweep that arm up and out, bringing the arm out, but you're also rotating the anterior shoulder away from the site of impaction. So at its highest rate of success, the posterior arm delivery, that's a clinical pearl, guys, is at 97% effective, but the technique has to be done correctly. So we're going to highlight that as well. So if you're on the oral boards and somebody asks, what's the technique that's the most effective? Well, depends how you define that. I mean, most effective, obviously, meaning release of the impacted shoulder. That No question. That's the posterior arm. Uh, but which is the least traumatic? It's no question. It's the dual pair. It's the combo of McRoberts and suprapubic pressure. So as an algorithm, let's just get right to it. If suprapubic pressure and McRoberts fails to dislodge the impacted shoulder, then consideration should really be done based on, on, on your level of skill. And that's why simulations are important to train on how to do this. Go for that posterior arm. And it's your whole hand in that posterior vagina, not two fingers, it's the whole hand to grab that forearm uh, and then and put pressure on the antecubital fossa to swing that arm across the fetal chest. Now, the question is, what happens if the arm is out of reach? I mean, it is possible that the posterior shoulder actually gets hung up on, on the uh, sacrum, on the promontory. What do you do there? Well, there's a rescue maneuver for that as well. Y'all remember that? That's called the axillary sling traction maneuver. But even that has to be done correctly. So again, we've, we've kind of spilled all the beans here already because we're, we were supposed to get into each technique uh, one at a time. And we're still going to do that. But the algorithm that I learned was like posterior arm is once everything else has failed and you've done the Rubin maneuver, both Rubin 1 and 2 and then Woods, and then you go for the arm. No, don't do that. Move to the posterior arm quickly if you've been trained how to do that, all right? And you notice I said Rubin 1 and then Rubin 2. We're going to get into that because I've asked medical students, I've asked other physicians, hey, describe to me what Rubin's 1 is when we're kind of in, in symposium or in conference. And they're like, Rubin 1? I don't know. I thought that was only like the Rubin maneuver. No, Rubin 1 is one that we're already doing. Rubin 1 is suprapubic pressure. So we're going to talk about each one of these in a little bit more detail. But let's start with the correct way to do McRoberts, all right? Because what you likely see in the pictures with the hands on the patient's uh, uh, soles of their feet and then pushing their feet up, that's actually not the best way to do it. And I'll explain why coming up next. How McRoberts actually works to free the impacted shoulders is actually not clear. I mean, we have got theories and we have x-rays that, that show what happens, but, but the true mechanisms of how it actually assists with release of the impacted shoulder is not very clear. We know that the pelvis obviously is rotated cephalad towards the mom's abdomen and that the lumbosacral lordosis that's normally present is flattened out, but the outlet dimensions do not change, okay? So if somebody asks you, are you actually increasing the, the size of the pelvic outlet uh, and the bony structures? No, it, it does not. Likely what's happening is that with McRoberts, you're, you're probably getting an increase in maternal expulsive forces, and that's been proven. That's been shown. Shown, uh, with intrauterine pressure catheters, you actually get more, uh, better transmission of forces in McRoberts. 
but you're not really changing any bony dimensions, okay? So the symphysis pubis uh, goes toward the maternal abdomen, and that rotation, along with the strengthening, the, the, the lining up, not strengthening, straightening. See, I told you all, English is a second language. Straightening, becoming straight of the, lambos, of the lumbar sacral spine is probably what helps, all right? But as, as everyone has seen in the pictures of the textbooks and even in the movies, right, you have the labor attendant kind of pushing on the patient's feet up. The problem with that is that you can actually get a lot of sciatic stretch uh, and a lot of ankle injuries. So the best way to do hyperflexion, which is what McRoberts is, the correct way to do hyperflexion of the hips is to actually put the hand, the, the assistant puts their hand in back of the knee, right, on the posterior part of the, of the, of the thigh, uh, and just above the popliteal area, and then pushes back while while keeping the leg straight. Does that make sense? So rather than pushing on the sole of the foot up, uh, which can transmit pressure vectors incorrectly, the goal is to put your hand in back of the patient's knee, just 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 prior to the popliteal area, and then push the leg backwards. And the leg shouldn't be all the way up in the air. Uh, we don't want to give anybody some kind of, of musculoskeletal injury. The leg should still be parallel. Uh, to to the bed. Make sense? So the, the reason that that's important is because a successful McRoberts is meant to, to increase that, that cephalad rotation of the, of the pubic symphysis. And the way that you see that is that there's a lifting up of the maternal buttocks. You want that. So if you're, if you're pushing on the patient's foot and the butt doesn't come off the bed because you're just moving the legs there, you're not moving the hips. Y'all get that? That's the catch. You want to move the hips. The buttocks should actually move up, move up out of the bed. And I've actually been in, in rooms where I've heard uh, from both midwives and nursing staff and other physicians and residents go, oh, no, you're doing it wrong with the butts coming up. Yeah, that's exactly what you want. If you're applying McRoberts correctly with with the hand behind the legs pushing up just just by the popliteal uh, fossa and the leg is still parallel to the bed, the buttocks should actually come up. That means that you now have cephalad rotation of the hips, not just pushing the legs up. You want the hips. You want the, 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 the shoulder, the shoulder girdle, Lord have mercy. You want the hip girdle to rotate cephalad. So the buttocks coming off the bed is a good thing. Now let's talk about the McRoberts partner, which is suprapubic pressure. Ask anyone tomorrow in labor and delivery, say, hey, what is the Rubin 1 procedure for a dystocia? Then go, Rubin 1? Isn't there just like just the Rubin maneuver? No, there's Rubin 1 and Rubin 2. And Rubin 1, actually, we're being technical about it. That's the true name of suprapubic pressure. It's like the... Uh, the low transverse C-section, right? That's the descriptive terminology for this for the surgery. It's a you cut, you make the incision in the low uterine segment, and it's a transverse incision, low transverse. But there's a formal name to that, which is a Kerr incision. Just like a classical C-section up and down on the myometrium, you say that's a vertical cesarean uh, on the myometrium. It's up and down. That's descriptive. That's where you cut. But the formal name of a classical C-section is the Sanger incision. Uh, actually, it's German. It's Sanger, but, but Sanger, uh, S-A-N-G-E-R. Well, same thing here. Suprapubic pressure is actually Rubin 1. And I've asked people and asked them, see what kind of answer you get is, hey, what are we trying to do with suprapubic pressure on a dystocia? And the answer that I have found 50% of the time, again, non-scientific polling, thank you, just asking people for the last 23 years, 
uh, why do we do suprapubic? And the answer that I get half the time is, oh, we're trying to push the anterior shoulder underneath the bridge, right? Trying to push the boat, just trying, trying to shove it under there, under the bridge. Uh, no, that's not what you're trying to do at all. That actually, you're impacting it even more. Y'all get that? So suprapubic pressure, I've walked in to people trying to relieve a dystocia, and I've seen the hand you know, placed on top of the pubic symphysis, pushing straight down, like you're going to push it down and out. That does not work because obviously the shoulder is stuck. If it would have moved under by itself, it would have done that with with traction on the baby's head. So that's not going to work. The correct way to do suprapubic pressure, Ruben 1 maneuver, is to see which way the baby's facing. So if the baby is facing, let's say, to our left, right? So that's mom's right. So we're looking at the vagina, that's something you can only say in an OBGYN podcast, right? We're looking at the vagina. My goodness. We're looking at the vagina at delivery because we're the attendants. Let me just be very clear. I don't want to get any kind of heat from that. Uh, and the baby's face is looking to our left, which means to mom's right. That means that suprapubic pressure should be being placed on the, on the mom's suprapubic area and the hand should be pushing towards the maternal right. Do y'all get that? So we're looking at the vagina. Baby is looking to our left, which is mom's right. Suprapubic pressure should be being placed at an angle going towards the mom's right. Why? Because the goal of suprapubic pressure isn't to push the shoulder underneath it. It's to abduct it towards the front of the baby's body onto the chest. Now you're saying, oh, come on, Chop, isn't that the same thing? No, no, because if you're trying to push suprapubic pressure up on top vertically, then that's a whole different set of mechanics. You, we're trying to move that shoulder to abduct it, to rotate it around, so either clockwise or counterclockwise. So suprapubic pressure, here's the clinical pearl, guys, is not what I have seen about 50% of the time straight up and down. You're not trying to push it or shoehorn it underneath. You're trying to rotate it away from the anterior pubic symphysis, all right? Now, let's do the flip of that. Let's say we're looking at the vagina, and now the baby is looking to our right. In other words, maternal left, right? Everybody have a visual of that. We're staring at the vagina. Baby's head is looking to our right. Suprapubic pressure there is going to be applied on top of the mom's suprapubic area being pushing towards the maternal left. Why? Because that's where the anterior shoulder, we want it to rotate. We want it to, to adduct, adduct onto the abdomen. So you got to know which direction to push. So suprapubic pressure isn't just pressure down on top of the bladder uh, and also as a side clinical pearl. That's why having the patient have an empty bladder before all vaginal deliveries is super key because when I'm doing a delivery, I know this is super type A and very neurotic, but do you not know me? I mean, that's my second name. It's like neurosis. <laughs> Every patient I walk in, even if they're like a grand multip, I'm like, this is a dystocial to approve and otherwise and a PPH. I mean, I, I know it's morbid and I know it's very pessimistic, but I'm on high alert all the time and it's been 23 years and it's it's worked for me, Okay. Now, it's probably not working for my cortisol levels, but I digress. What the hell is I saying now? Oh, yeah. So anyway, so every delivery is the dystocia to prove otherwise. And that's why you should have an empty bladder. Not only is it protection against PPH, but uh, suprapubic pressure with a full bladder is a great way to be ineffective and also potentially damage the bladder. So every patient, uh, you should go in thinking, I'm prepared for if stuff's going to hit the fan. Notice I said stuff because I really almost said the other word.
podcast family. But wait, there's more because that's Ruben 1. Ruben 2 is that if suprapubic pressure with McRoberts doesn't work, then you go on to Ruben 2, which is actually an internal rotation maneuver. All right. So Ruben 2 is placing the hand uh, behind the pubic arch, trying to adduct that shoulder towards the the front of the baby's body towards the chest, okay? So for Ruben, your hand goes behind the anterior shoulder on the posterior side of the anterior shoulder and then rotating it towards the baby's chest, trying to to, to bring that shoulder uh, the same way what, what suprapubic pressure was trying to do towards the baby's chest. All right, so remember, Ruben 1 is suprapubic pressure. Ruben 2 is placing your hand in the back of the anterior impacted shoulder, trying to move it towards the chest, trying to rotate it and adduct it, adduct it, uh, to decrease uh, the dimension uh, vertically. Very similar to the Woods maneuver, all right? So now, Woods is is placing your hand on the posterior uh, shoulder, all right? So Ruben 1 is trying to dislodge the anterior shoulder suprapubically. Uh, Ruben 2 is trying to dislodge the anterior shoulder vaginally. Woods is trying to do the same thing, but focusing on the posterior shoulder. Now, follow me here, because for Woods, it, it's super easy, uh, but you just got to pay attention, once again, to where the baby is facing. So follow this for Woods. If the baby, if the face is towards our left side, in other words, looking towards mom's right side, right? Baby's looking to our left, then use your left hand, all right? So left, left. So for Woods, if the baby's looking to the left, take your left hand and put it in the maternal right posterior pelvis. So now you're going to be at the front of the baby's chest and then use your hand to just sweep to push, go go in, in a circular fashion. So that's going to be pushing. If the hand is on the left, uh, it's going to be going anti-clockwise, all right? So counterclockwise. Does that make sense? Let's do that again. We're looking at the vagina. Baby is looking to our left. We want to do woods. So looking to the left, posterior shoulder. I'm going to use my left hand, put it uh, in the front of the posterior shoulder in the, in the posterior vagina, and I'm going to move my hand. I'm going to do a sweep going counterclockwise. Now, if the baby is actually looking to our right, I'm going to use my right hand. All right. So for Woods, which hand to use is which way the baby's facing. Baby's looking to my right, which is mom's left. Mom's looking to my right. I'm going to use my right hand. And then I'm going to do the exact same thing. Put my hand in back of the vagina on the, on the anterior side of the, of the baby's shoulder. And I'm going to now push towards the clockwise rotation. You see that? So for Woods, remember, Woods corkscrew is is rotating the posterior shoulder. And which hand to use is which way the baby's facing. If the baby is facing towards my left, I use my left hand and go counterclockwise. If the baby is looking to the right, I'm going to use my right hand and I'm going to push clockwise. A final word about the Woods rotation maneuver, because I've also seen that on simulations where people simulate doing the Woods with like two or three fingers, like that's going to work. That's not enough pressure. All you're going to do there is is either hurt or break your finger uh, or make that not effective. In order to do the Woods screw maneuver, you got to stick your whole hand in there. I mean, you need that surface area contact and you need that pressure, that vector that only your whole hand works. So that's a clinical pearl. 
as the delivery assistant, the whole hand goes through uh, deep into the posterior vagina so that the palm can evenly exert the rotational force on the fetal anterior chest. Using two fingers is incorrect. All right, look, I don't know about you all, but that's good stuff right there. McRoberts, super pubic pressure, or Rubens 1. Uh, if those failed, then you should probably go to posterior arm delivery, which I haven't talked about yet. I went straight from Ruben 2 to the woods because they're related because those are both rotational, okay? And you're definitely not wrong. Look, if you do uh, super pubic and Ruben 1 and then you try Ruben 2 and you're like, that's not working, I'm going to try the, the woods corkscrew, fine. But at some point, you you really want to, in your back pocket, pull out the posterior arm extraction because that joker does work, okay? And But if you're not comfortable with that, definitely do th- this in this little algorithm. Do super pubic with Rubin 1, move over to Rubin 2, and then do the continue with rotation since you already started rotating. Try to do the woods based on which way the baby's looking, which will determine which hand to use. Fine. Nice. Now let's talk about posterior arm extraction. This whole idea of these rotational maneuvers like Rubin II or Woods, as well as the posterior arm delivery extraction, uh, are great because they do not require direct traction on the baby's neck, okay? So to protect the brachial plexus, guys, Rubin II, Woods, and posterior arm is the way to go. Now, to do the posterior arm removal, now, first of all, that only works if the anterior shoulder and if the baby's arm, not forearm, but the arm initially, is accessible. If if the posterior shoulder is kind of hung up on the pubic symphysis, I mean, you can't reach it. I mean, you got to do something else. That's why there's options, right? Do the rotational maneuvers or try to bring the arm down with the posterior sling traction maneuver, which is either with a, a long strip of gauze uh, or a red rubber catheter. But the red rubber catheter really scares me because what's been published as a case report is they, they applied so much friction on that red rubber catheter or even a regular Foley on the baby's axilla and they pulled and pulled and pulled it. They got the baby out, sure did, but it created so much heat that that soft tissue, it was literally a, a circumferential burn all the way around the axilla um, and, and up on, on the anterior shoulder and posterior shoulder. So if you're going to use something that's a rubber tourniquet or a Foley, then you got to coat that with lubrication and be careful that you're not burning the skin. Uh, the alternative to that is that if you can kind of, uh, you know, tuck around the axilla either with um, small forceps or with your finger, then then kind of do a, a lubricated gauze as well, like a, a strip of gauze to try to to bring that arm down. That's called the posterior sling uh, technique, and it does work. But focusing right now on the posterior arm delivery, just like the whole hand goes in into the posterior vaginal compartment for the wood screw maneuver, the whole hand has to go into the posterior arm to grab the the arm itself. All right. Now, once the arm is 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 in contact with the palm, then put your thumb on the antecubital fossa that flexes the arm across the chest, walk the hand down the forearm, grab the hand, don't pull on the arm or the forearm, grab the hand ideally, and then pull up and out. 
So the traction there is up and out. And what really what you're doing outside of the fact that you're just delivering the arm and, and bringing down the entire vertical axis of the child behind and below the pubic symphysis, watch, if you think about it, you've got your hand in the vagina, you grab it, and as you're pulling that arm across the chest, you're actually rotating the chest as well and, and the anterior shoulder. So you're rotating it at the same time. And posterior arm extraction, guys, that has the highest chance of success. But only do that if you have simulation training or if you've got clinical experience. You've got to practice. That's why uh, doing these things with practice and simulations is absolutely vital. All right, podcast family, we're getting towards the end here. I do not want to cover the very morbid uh, procedures like Zavanelli, which is replacing the baby, you know, reversing the cardinal phases and then proceeding with a C-section uh, or things like symphysiotomy. I'm not talking about that in this episode because those are, are extreme uh, and, and thankfully rarely done. I don't have the specifics of what happened with the recent case. Uh, I have no idea, but things like symphysiotomy, uh, clavicular fracture, Zavanelli, those are legit. However, if you do these other procedures that we've just covered beforehand, including one repositioning of the patient that we're going to talk about last, which is the Gaskin maneuver on all fours, if you do those others and the Gaskin, if you have to, uh, you shouldn't really have to resort to these, all right? So just know, yes, those things are super heroic. Those are usually last resort uh, with a you know, not a great outcome. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but if you do what we've already covered here, including Gaskin that we're about to touch on next, ideally, those maneuvers should not have to be done. Okay, as we end, let's just briefly say a word about Gaskin. Now think about it. You got the baby's head out of the vagina. She's in lithotomy. Moving her into all fours sounds great, but it's super difficult. Also, forget about it if she's got regional anesthesia. And if she has regional anesthesia, you can't do this because she's the legs won't cooperate. Plus, how are you going to be on all fours if you can't feel your legs? Uh, I mean, you can't support yourself. So as a clinical pearl, the all fours, the Gaskin maneuver is not feasible when the, per, when the patient is under deep regional. Now, I know at some point it's going to be a light block and maybe she has function. Fine. But in general, moving a patient to all fours with a deep block is just not ideal. Plus, like McRoberts, you still need to do traction. I mean, the kid doesn't just fall out because mom's now on all fours. But think about what you're doing here. If you put the patient into all fours, which is not just on all fours with the back straight, but with with buttocks kind of elevated up, really what you're trying to do is mimic a McRoberts in reverse. Does that make sense? Really what you're trying to do is, is move that, 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 that sacrum going from a curved sacrum that's kind of blocking that posterior shoulder because it's on the bed, trying to flatten it out so that you can pull up and away from the anterior shoulder. So the criticism with Gaskin is, hey, I love it. I get the idea. Let's just pull away from the anterior shoulder. But if she's got regional, it's tough. And the second criticism is I still got to pull. So it doesn't uh, negate the possibility of brachial uh, plexus injury. But now you're obviously just doing it in reverse, right? So rather than pulling down, you're pulling up and away uh, against and further with the direction of the vector away from the anterior uh, pubic symphysis anterior pubic symphysis. I mean, what other kind of pubic symphysis is there? A posterior pubic symphysis? It pulling away from the impacted anterior shoulder behind the pubic symphysis is what I meant to say.
All right, podcast family, we have covered the tips and the tricks to make the rescue maneuvers, the release maneuvers for shoulder dystocia effective. Again, this comes out of a brand new expert review from the Gray Journal, the title of which is a critical evaluation of the external and internal maneuvers for resolution of shoulder dystocia. You don't have to wait for other things to fail to grab that posterior arm. That is the one maneuver that likely is the most effective when done in isolation. Otherwise, McRoberts and Subrapubic, otherwise known as Rubin 1, should be effective in the vast majority of cases, excluding those with very large BMIs. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.